Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, the grace and the peace of the risen Lord be with all of us gathered here and with all who are tuning in to this service from far away. After an anthem like that, you know what I want to say, right? It's hallelujah is what I want to say. Yeah, thank you. My word. Thank you, choir. Thank you for leading us with our imaginations, with our hearts, with our minds, and even our bodies into the presence of a mystery that gathers all of us here, the likes of which words themselves will fail. But what we do in this moment is we attempt to reach into words that have been handed down through years and years over generations and generations of a truth that gives us something to stand on today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Listen to these words. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you, in turn, received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's offer a word of prayer now as we study God's word. Lord, in this moment of worship in which you have our mind's attention and our heart's affection, we humbly ask that for just a moment or two, you might show us something about your presence among us that changes the way not only that we think and feel, but the way we live in this world. We pray that the mystery of resurrection, which surrounds us today and is above and below us today, would be known inside us today. 
that there might be in the singing of these songs and in the proclaiming of this word, there might be an inner aliveness that we all feel as you are raised up within us and among us, even this very moment. And we pray that you would speak now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts simply be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you will now bless the words that proceed from my mouth as we attempt to interpret your sacred word so that in hearing, we may never be the same. Amen. So one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was a man named Karl Barth. He lived in Basel, Switzerland, and one day a tourist came to his city. The tourist got onto the streetcar to travel from place to place and unknowingly sat down right next to the great theologian. So Barth leans over and begins to talk to this visitor and says, are you visiting? Are you in town for a, for a holiday? Yeah, yeah. Anything you want to see in particular while you're here in town? And the, the guest, the visitor said, yeah, I would love to meet the great theologian Karl Barth. And then halfway joking, you don't happen to know him, do you? To which Barth replied, well, as a matter of fact, I do. I give him a shave every morning. <laughs> then the tourist got off the off the car and went to the hotel where his wife was, he burst through the door and said, honey, you'll never guess who I met today. Today I met Carl Bart's barber. <laughs> yeah. You know that it's possible, right? To be standing right in front of the very thing that you've been looking for your whole life and just miss it. Back in 2016, there was in Honolulu, Hawaii, a reggae concert of all things. And one of the headliners was a man, uh, an artist, reggae artist, a Jewish re reggae artist of all things, right? His name was Mattis Yahoo. And he was headlining that night, but that morning, he and some of his band members decide to go for some coffee. They walk into this coffee shop and pick up just a cup of joe. And while he's there, he sees this street performer, this this kid kind of playing for tips. He's playing a ukulele and he's singing one of Mattis Yahoo's songs, one of his hit songs. But the kid doesn't recognize that it's Mattis. And so I want you to see a picture of Mattis right here in the coffee shop in the red shirt, grinning because he's absolutely delighting in the fact that this kid's singing his hit song and doesn't even recognize that the artist that he admires and idolizes is standing right there sipping on some coffee. So he plays, but he doesn't just play. Mattis begins to sing along with the kid. And this artist begins to sing harmonies and backup and little licks to the song. He fills it in a little bit. And I want you to get about 30 seconds of this moment. And the kid is completely clueless as to who he is. Check it out.
this goes on and on, and the kid's just loving it. He's like, oh, well, these customers are the best. They just sing along with me. No clue. At the, in fact, at the very end, where, where he, he stops his song, he goes over, watch this, and he says, hey, thank you to this customer. Hey, you got a nice voice, you know? The customer says, you know who wrote that song? He goes, yeah, a guy named Mattis. He goes, yeah, I'm Mattis. That's me, Mattis Yahoo. And the guy's like, what? You got to be kidding me. Get out of town. They have this moment. And afterwards, he gives him tickets to the big show that night. He sings with him on stage. It's great. But I see that video and it reminds me that it is possible. That's a parable, you know. You and I can be standing in front of the very thing that we long for, that we've been searching for, and yet absolutely miss it completely. Jesus when he was raised from the dead, appeared to more than 500 of his disciples. And the stories that are best told, the first stories, the best stories of his appearance to these disciples are with disciples who knew him best and loved him most and recognized him the least. He's standing right in front of them. And Mary thinks that he's a gardener. He walks alongside them on the way to Emmaus, and two of the disciples think that he's just some traveling companion, some stranger on the road. Seven disciples get in a boat one day, and they fish all night long, and they hear nothing, and yet there's a guy on the shoreline calling out to them to throw in their nets on the other side, and they don't recognize it's the same voice of the shepherd who had shepherded the sheep for the last three years. It is possible for you and I to stand in front of the thing we long for the very most and miss it completely. And why? I mean, there are elaborate explanations as to the possibilities of why. Maybe he had a different kind of body. Maybe it was a resurrection body and it didn't look the same. And all that's fine and good. But honestly, I think the, the best explanation is the simplest explanation. And it's this. I think they missed recognizing the Christ, for the same reasons that you and I miss recognizing the Christ. Because we don't know how to look for him. So Mary goes to the tomb early in the morning and she sees that the tomb is empty. She runs and she gets the disciples. She gets Peter and John and they race to the tomb. They look inside the tomb. They see the folded clothes, the folded linens, and they take off and they leave her standing there weeping. And Jesus comes, the risen one, comes right up to her. And we pick up the story with these words. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary, standing there, finally recognizing who he is, presumably she lunges forward and grabs onto him, embraces him, and he says perhaps the most awkward thing in the whole passage, don't hold on to me, which I take to mean more than just physically stop clinging to me. 
she calls him by rabbi, the only version of Jesus that she had known. And Jesus says, stop clinging to what you used to know about me because standing before you is something so much bigger than the carpenter. It's the Christ. So much more than the rabbi. It's the risen one. And I think some of us miss seeing the Christ and being embraced by the Christ for the same reason we won't let go of what we used to know about him in order for him to reveal himself for who he is now. And some of us go through adulthood and it begins through our adolescence and we feel this life of spiritual emptiness and, and drought. And the trouble is we look for Christ in the midst of our adult-sized problems but we reach back for our childhood version of what we knew about Jesus because we've never allowed that Jesus to grow up within us. And the childhood Jesus is rarely capable of meeting us in our adult-sized crises, the troubles that we face in which the living Christ wants to reintroduce himself and meet our needs and be our Christ, but we won't let go, stop clinging to me, Mary. We won't let go of what we used to know to be embraced by something so much bigger. And you're like, well, what's wrong with childlike faith? Aren't we supposed to have childlike faith? Yes, childlike faith, but not childish faith. And Mary is my teacher today because there have been seasons when I have refused to let go of what I used to know about God in order to be embraced by the God who has been risen, raised, and shown up in my life to try to rescue me in a new way. And yet there's this other story of standing in front of something and missing it completely. These two disciples, they're going to Emmaus. Emmaus is this, this town, and we presume that it's a, it's a place where they live. And after Jerusalem, after the Passover, they're on their way back to their home. Two disciples, one of them is named Cleopas. The other one is unnamed. We assume that it's two dudes, two men, but I assume that it's a man and a woman a man and his unnamed wife walking back to their home in Emmaus. And we're told that as they're walking along, the risen Christ meets them, and they don't recognize who he is. This is like the same weekend of the crucifixion. And we pick up the story here in Luke 24. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were were kept from recognizing him. So that's passive language. They were kept, right? As if there's some outside force or outside dynamic or energy or something keeping them from seeing that it's him. And in their case, it's the outside force of grief, the outside force of disappointment. Because they're walking back to Emmaus, this long, slow slog all the way back home because they had put all of their hopes in this one who they saw crushed and crucified. And now disappointed, they walk back unable to see clearly. And sometimes I think you and I miss seeing the Christ of God right in front of us because we're so disappointed about the thing that happened. Or we're so disappointed or unfulfilled about the thing that didn't happen that we no longer can see what's happening right in front of us because we're so fixated on what was yesterday. Or we're so afraid of what is tomorrow that we can't see we're brushing elbows with the very one who's trying to show up in the middle of disappointment. 
So Jesus makes them tell them the story. Hey, what y'all talking about? Literally, this is what he says. What are y'all talking about as you're going along the way? And they're like, are you kidding me? Are you the only one in all of Israel who doesn't know what happened this weekend? And they said, there was this prophet, mighty in power and deed and word before God. And we had thought that he would be the one. And then this powerful line of disappointment. They say, right here, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I think some of the times in my own journey when I have been the blindest, the blindest to the Christ, is when I have put a hope in something that has disappointed me. And in my disappointment, and in my own long, slow slog back to Emmaus, you see, Emmaus is hard to find on a map because Emmaus, according to the translation, could have been either eight miles away from Jerusalem or depending on how you translate the Greek, it could have been 18 miles away from Jerusalem. So when Frederick Buechner is reflecting on what Emmaus is and where Emmaus was, you know what he said? He said these words. He said, Emmaus is that place where we all go to hide. It's that place where we all go to retreat or escape when things in Jerusalem don't go as they have been planned. And we all find a different way to hide in Emmaus. But the truth of the matter is we all go back to some Emmaus and we retreat away from dealing with our disappointments and all the while we don't see that the Christ in whom we have hoped is with us in the very middle of the the disappointment. And then there's this other story, right? of how we can be in front of the thing and miss the thing altogether. So Peter, you know, over the weekend, had some deep, deep regrets. Because Peter, when the moment called, the very moment of truth, when they said, hey, are you with him? Are you one of his disciples? He denied Jesus three times, right? This is not... No, you're confusing me with somebody else. No, I'm not a follower. And so he denies him three times and he feels such deep regret and remorse over it that maybe that's why he ran to the tomb when Mary said, hey, it's empty. Maybe he ran in order to be the first to embrace Jesus and tell him how regretful he feels and how sorry he was. And you can count on me again. I want to make this right with you, Jesus. Yes, I failed you, but I want to fix this. And yet he still hasn't seen Jesus. So you know what he does? He says, you know what, forget this. I'm going fishing. And he decides to go fishing. And six other disciples go with him. And while they're fishing, they fish all through the night and don't catch a thing. But you know, sometimes when you're in deep regret and you know you've blown it, you know what you end up doing? We all end up needing to find something familiar to self-soothe, don't we? Maybe he just needed to feel the coarseness of the, the fishing net in his hands. Maybe he just needed the familiar smell of salt air. Maybe he needed to float in the boat of regret on that sea of disappointment for a little while. And all through the night, because they caught nothing, I imagine Peter and the other six just kind of looking up at the night sky, reflecting over what has gone right and what has gone wrong, and if I had it to do over again, and oh, if there was one more opportunity, and then the morning comes, and there's this voice, a man on the shoreline who calls out to them, hey, cast the net on the other side, and they don't recognize that it's his voice. They don't recognize that it's the voice who had been teaching them this entire time, until eventually, John says, it's the Lord. 
And when that happens, we're told this happens inside Peter. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, a little awkward, and into the sea. Okay, I'm not a fisherman, but I, I guarantee you when I have been fishing, we were mostly fully clothed. Okay, let's just, let's just safe to say it that way. So here he is, he hears that it's the Lord, and he gets dressed, and he jumps into the water, and typically you and I interpret that passage as, oh, he's so excited to see Jesus, he jumps in, he swims to the shore, and it's probably true, that's probably what's going on here, but here's what I know about regret. When I have regretted something, man, I want to hide. The text says he jumped into the sea, but it didn't say which side of the boat it was. Maybe he jumped on the back side of the boat so as to not be seen because he knows the moment he sees Jesus, Jesus will confront him about the thing that happened. Jesus will hold up a mirror and make him see the part of himself that is not who Jesus wants him to be. And so maybe he jumps in the other side to just avoid because that is what we do. We self-sabotage. We do. We make a mistake, we blow it, we, we, we screw it up, and then we say, you know what? Yeah, I really can't make it to church today. I can't crack the spine of my, my Bible. I, I don't have time to be in prayer, really. I can't really be generous and do the things that I need to do to serve my neighbor and my, my community. And so we find a way to keep all the things that we need the most at an arm's distance. And we self-sabotage. And all the while, we're like, man, I sure could use seeing Christ right now, but we do whatever it takes to keep ourselves away because we know that if we're in the presence of Christ, Christ will confront the part of us that is not Christly. Well, eventually he jumps in and he swims to the shore and they, they have this fish for breakfast and Jesus confronts him and says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Three times he asks. And makes Peter say, yes, I love you, Lord. You know I love you, Lord. Yes, you, you know that I love you. And I love these stories about moments when they're standing in front of the very thing they meet, need the most, in front of the Christ of God, and they miss it completely. And the reason I love these stories is because it provokes necessary questions in us. Because the truth is, in a post-pandemic church, the risen body of our Lord will look different. In the post-pandemic church, the risen body of Christ will look different, and it already does. And the questions that we have to raise in order to see the Christ, to know the Christ, to be embraced by the Christ of God, the questions that we have to raise are the questions that Mary had to raise. Are we willing to let go of what we used to know about our journey in order to be embraced by the God who wants to meet us right here and right now? Are we willing to stop our slow retreat back into whatever Emmaus it is that we know in order to see the stranger Christ walk alongside us? You know, part of that story is they go to their home and they end up inviting the stranger into the room, into the house, and they, well, they bake the bread and they pour the wine and they serve him. And in the middle of just doing the ordinary routine, mundane activity of being hospitable and welcoming the stranger, their eyes are opened and they see that it's Christ. Are we willing to look for Christ in the places where he shows up as a stranger and we feed and give drink and bread 
Are we willing to stop the the self-sabotaging? Are we willing to come to a place where we recognize that over the course of this past year, we have blown it in some ways, individually, as Christians in the world? Is it possible for us to begin to admit that we have denied Christ three times and maybe we got out of the habit of worship. Maybe we got out of the habit of spiritual practices and praying and giving our time away and serving our neighbors. Is it possible that we jump into the water, swim to the fish fry, and let him confront us so that we can reaffirm our confession? Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you know, Lord, that I love you. Because this is what resurrection is, my beloved sisters and brothers. This is resurrection. Most of the time, we think that resurrection is simply about Jesus rising from the dead, saving us from our sins, and providing our pathway to heaven eternally. And it is magnificently all true. All of that is fantastically true. But it's more than that. Christ was raised and lived among us in order to redeem this world to rescue us from our own self-destruction. I mean, if it were simply about finding a way to escape this world and live in the next, well, then when he was raised from the dead, he would have simply ascended right to the right hand of the Father, and that be that. But instead, look what he did. Jesus took on the hard work of showing up in ways that were difficult to recognize so that his disciples had to work hard at looking for him and seeing him in the mundane, routine, helter-skelter events of every day. In the normal events of grief and sorrow, the long walk of disappointment, in the normal activities of welcoming in those who are strangers to us, in the normal activities of kneading dough and baking bread and pouring wine, so that we have to look for him when things don't go well and we regret the destruction of our own decisions. That's resurrection. In the mundane, routine events of our lives, so that we might recognize, eyes wide open, that the Christ of God, the risen Lord, is in every single direction waiting to be discovered, waiting to be known in every part of our messy lives every part of our broken story. And see, you and I have come to depend on the infrastructure of this institution because over the years, pre-pandemic, we became dependent upon the programs and the ministries and the, well, the Sunday school and the worship and the sermons and the Bible studies and the songs because they gave us a lens through which to recognize Christ. But in a post-pandemic era, when all of those infrastructures and programs have been challenged and even rattled to the very core, the question is, have we taught ourselves to look for him outside these walls? Because that's where he shows up. So I think, I think about the great theologian N.T. Wright. He says this is what resurrection is all about. Listen to his words. The point of resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself— All of these things will last into God's future. 
That's called resurrection, and that's worth a hallelujah. Come on, there we go, children. Yes. This is why Bell puts it this way. Another kind of bell. Rob Bell puts it this way. Resurrection announces that God has not given up on the world because this world matters. This world that we call home. Dirt and blood and sweat and skin and light and water. This world that God is redeeming and restoring and renewing. Greed and violence and abuse, see, they are not right and they cannot last because they belong to death and death does not belong. Somebody say hallelujah. This is why Frederick Beekner talked about the resurrection in this way. The sacred moments of, of miracle and resurrection are often the everyday moments. The moments which, if we do not look with more than our eyes and listen with more than our ears, reveal only a gardener or a stranger coming down the road behind us or, or a meal like any other meal. But if we look with our hearts, if we listen with our whole being and imagination, what we may see is Jesus himself. That's Easter. That's resurrection. And that's worth a hallelujah. Yeah. And my friends, if you're at a place today where you have been longing for the kind of inner aliveness that comes from knowing Jesus, the question is, are you willing to look for him in the least expected places? Because that's where he goes. Are you willing to look for him in the least expected people? Because that's how he shows up. And are you willing to allow the power of God's presence to inhabit you, to inhabit your home, to inhabit your quasi-quarantine, to inhabit your workspace, your school, your neighborhoods. Because if you're willing to do that, then you open up space in your life to recognize what's worth a hallelujah. Yeah. So maybe we pray in this way. Wherever you are today spiritually, maybe these words can be your words. And you just pray them, eyes wide open, but with your heart equally as open. God, I, I have been looking in a number of ways to be embraced by something bigger than me. And I admit to you, there are days when I am so disappointed with where that journey has taken me that I don't know what to do about it. And, and Lord, I recognize that I sometimes retreat into my own Emmaus and I, I'm so clouded by my regret or disappointment that I, I can't even see if you're trying to show up in my life. So I ask that you forgive me. And I ask that you would clarify my sight that I may be seeing you with the eyes of my heart, that I may be listening to you with the eyes of my heart and, and that you may make me new. Because if you will take me, I will follow you. And I will be yours from this moment forward. Now, if you pray a prayer that simple, it counts and God hears. And God can begin the restoration process in your heart to raise you up to walk in newness of life. And if you prayed that prayer just now, whether here or at home, we want to know about it. Even right now, our pastors are walking forward 
And at the conclusion of this service, when we are finished, I want you to come and talk to them. And they're going to walk you through the next step in your journey with Christ. And if you're at home watching, I want you to email us at connect at jcbc.org so that we can meet you where you are in this journey and look for the Christ together. But wherever it is that you are in the spiritual journey, now is the time for us to depart this worship service and actually begin the pursuit of looking for the Christ who is alive this day. For he is risen. He is risen indeed. And if you'll stand to your feet, we'll offer one final blessing to empower you on your journey. And it's this prayer that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. That Christ would go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when, when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final hallelujah. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts cry hallelujah with his. Amen. Go in peace.